Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the FearCast. I'm your host, Kevin Foss. I'm a licensed therapist and OCD and anxiety specialist uh, in California, and again, oddly enough, in Montana. Um, and uh, this is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, and getting your life back. So if this is your first time to this podcast, uh, thank you for joining us today. If you are a return member or a turn listener, thank you so much for coming back and, and listening to it again. Um, thank you again to all the questions out there uh, or all the questioners out there who are sending in questions to the podcast. That is what this episode is designed uh, to do, to look at and to have uh, and to answer. And uh, today I'm going to be answering a couple of uh, questions from you, the listeners. So that will be happening a little bit later today. Um, so this is a, uh, a little bit of a respite episode from what we've been doing for a while now, which is talking about uh, scrupulosity and faith and doubt and things like that. So this is not just a faith and doubt podcast. Uh, this is a podcast, again, dedicated to OCD and anxiety in general. And we're going to be going over various things from time to time. Uh, and for right now, uh, we're on a religion and um, a faith kick. So um, uh, uh, buckle up. It's going to be okay. But this is a nice little breather for those of you uh, who just can't stand it if I talk about that. And that's fine. So today, we're going to be talking about conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. So, a conspiracy, uh, uh, to uh, uh, so my definitions here will be adapted from uh, the main source of, uh, of all knowledge these days, which is Wikipedia. A conspiracy is a secret plan between two or more people to commit some unlawful or harmful act. Now, a conspiracy theory is an explanation of an event or situation that invokes a conspiracy by sinister and powerful actors when other explanations are more probable. Some of the more popular uh, conspiracies out there you can think about are um, the moon landing, whether or not we landed on the moon or whether it was faked, um, the flat earth argument, if you've heard that uh, uh, theory float, floated about, I think it's just most popular on the interwebs, 9-11, um, whether or not it was indeed terrorists or whether or not it was an inside job, multiple shooters of JFK, um, and uh, chemtrail conspiracy theories, um, if you don't know what any of those are, look them up. Um, you're probably better off not looking them up, but uh, if you want uh, some entertainment, you can look them up. Now, conspiracy theories are usually developed by well-meaning to people uh, just to tr try to explain something that's uncertain uh, or the answers that are given to them don't seem to provide any sense of satisfaction or, uh, or resolution. Now, the theories themselves, they're built on elements of truth, and, but they're fortified with kind of uh, unconnected, fabricated, manipulated, or loosely associated information to provide this larger, often highly elaborate story. And usually, to the rest of us, they seem really far-fetched. The belief in these theories often leads to odd or kind of uh, paranoid responses to people or entities uh, uh, related to those theories. Uh, some of these things can be avoidance, mistrust, doubt, fear, or aggression. People who believe in these theories, of course, are called conspiracy theorists. You've probably heard people talk about this or heard people referenced as this or even been called this before. But people who believe in these theories really hold strong to them. They hold them so dear, so fervently to themselves, um, and they are willing to defend them 
uh, intensely and and with vigor and with with all their energy and might that they can do. Now, a conversation, if you've ever had a conversation with a conspiracy theorist, um, usually this conversation does not go well. Usually, both sides, the believer and the unbeliever, um, hold adamantly to defend their position, uh, and they just refuse to give any ground. They don't want to agree to any of the other points, or they don't want to suggest that maybe their position might be inaccurate In other words, no one is convincing no one. We're not getting anywhere in this conversation if you've ever tried to have a conversation about this. Now, does this sound like anyone you know of? Does this sound like anything you know of? The little anxiety and OCD voice that lives in our heads is a conspiracy theorist. That's right, a conspiracy theorist. You thought this was just going to be about conspiracy theories, everybody. Nope. Of course, it was going to tie back into OCD and anxiety. But yes, your anxiety is just like a conspiracy theorist. That little voice holds beliefs that are based on half-truths. They're nearly impossible to convince yourself or somebody else, either in or out of the theory for prolonged periods of time. They're elaborate and harmful. They insinuate that various people, places, items, or actions are unsafe or threatening despite widespread belief that they're innocuous or at the very least far less dangerous than the theory suggests. Also, they're pervasive despite other more probable explanations. Take a second to consider your anxiety or obsessions. Sometimes that little conspiracy theorist voice in our head that says that something is dangerous or that uh, uh, we are guilty of something or that uh, something is going to happen unless we do X, Y, or Z. Sometimes that thought is very reasonable and kind of kind of goes along with the crowd. And, 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 and other times, they just seem uselessly and illogically rigid. So often with our anxieties, we beat our head against the wall or we tie ourselves into knots trying to get ourselves, our own brain, on the same page and convince our own brain and our own anxiety that it's wrong, but to no avail. Now, this convincing often takes the form of compulsive behavior, reassurances, reassurances from other people, mentally reviewing things that have happened in the past to try to find proof trying to consider what the future will look like if you do X, Y, or Z, trying to figure out what the future would look like if you had done X, Y, or Z. Maybe it's a ritualistic action. Maybe it's a ritual of some type, behavior, mental, emotional, or otherwise. Now, if you're listening to this episode, you've done those things. You've done them a thousand times. You've had these conversations with your conspiracy theorist and probably to no avail. They've probably not really gotten anywhere. Sometimes they've shut their mouth for a period of time. Sometimes they've maybe yielded their time and have not said anything, and we kind of come to a stalemate. But eventually, like all good conspiracy theorists, they eventually start yammering on about their beliefs, about their insinuations, about their assertions. The question is going to be, how long do you want to be in this conversation with this conspiracy theorist? You're not convincing them and they're not really going to convince you, at least not, not for the long run. Maybe in those moments of weakness, uh, they, uh, they convince us. But when we're not in their midst, we say that thought's ridiculous, or that belief is ridiculous, or that action is unnecessary. So as an alternative response, we can hear them out. 
We can politely acknowledge their points when that conspiracy theorist tries to tell you its story yet again. Politely acknowledge what they're saying, then slowly walk past them and move on with your life. You can throw it in, you know, interesting, the, the sarcastic um, uh, uh, meme world version of this might be, cool story, bro. And this is kind of a great response. It's not shutting your eyes and plugging your ears and saying, la, 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 it's, but, it, but it placates and appeases the voice while being true to who you are, what you know to be true, and it frees you from trying to convince an otherwise unconvincible inner voice. So again, we're not trying to suppress the thought. We're not trying to pretend it's not there, but we're also not going to pretend like it has any merit. I'm going to just politely acknowledge that it's there, and we're going to move on. This week, with one of your obsessions and anxieties, I want you to consider the cool story, bro, or that's crazy, brain, or uh, from ACT, and say, thanks. Thanks for that thought. Interesting. Hmm. Food for thought. Something to think about. And, And then move on. Again, that thought's going to be there, but we say those things to this conspiracy theorist brain of ours when it tries to rope you in again, but instead of fighting, we're going to acknowledge it, take a deep breath, and move on with your day. All right, on to a couple questions. Okay, this first question comes from Kyle. Kyle asks, I'm not sure if this is a pure O situation or not, but I tend to stay up as late as possible until I have the right mindset so I can have good dreams. I have to wear the right clothes and think about good things before going to bed to ensure that I will rest well. All right, Kyle, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, So, right off the bat, I'd say this doesn't necessarily sound like it's a pure O situation because uh, you are doing outward compulsions. Uh, 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 Specifically, you mentioned wearing the right clothes and and probably doing doing other outward things, so things that are are, are external outside of your body. for for those who have never heard the term pure O, pure O is this uh, is a bit of a misnomer within the OCD world. Uh, uh, with OCD, it's uh, it, it has two parts: it is obsession and compulsive. OCD is short for obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, so it has the two parts: the obsession is the thought that goes on; it's that feared story that our brain tells us, and the compulsion is a behavior or an action that we do, or something that we maybe even don't do, to try to control the way that we feel in response to that thought, or to try to eliminate or to control the outcome of that in some type of way. The notion of pure O comes with someone who has the obsession, but oftentimes their compulsions are thought-based, or, it's, or it feels to the individual like it's just more obsessions. They're just constantly think about, thinking about it. Why it's a misnomer is that the obsession itself or that the obsessing process that the person is doing is ultimately compulsive. It's thinking themselves into a way of, of feeling good or thinking themselves into a place of security and safety again. Um, but again, that's it's a false sense of safety and a false sense of security. Now, um, that's why they don't say it's it's external because it's all going on in their mind. I do often find people who have, quote, pure O obsessions that uh, they, they are doing external things, um, but it's usually very minimal uh, or sometimes it, it is minimal. So oftentimes, they're, I mean, they're, they're long story short, it's all still compulsions that needs to stop. 
Now, Kyle, it's still possible that you're doing internal compulsions. Again, you're probably giving yourself reassurances or telling yourself that you're going to sleep well and everything's going to be all right. So those would be some internal compulsions. So that that would kind of, again, be kind of pure O. But again, to, to try to categorize it as pure O or not, I, I think I'm getting off. Uh, I'm getting myself off on, on a wrong track. One thing that you don't say is what is so bad about not having good dreams. In other words, what's so bad about having bad dreams? People have bad dreams. This is where the feared story comes in. There's something that, that you didn't mention here, and that's totally fine. But um, if you were in my office, I'd be asking you about, well, what is what is so bad? What is so scary about them? Within your dreams, are, are you trying to avoid certain subjects or topics or events or activities or people? Is it just that you just outright plain don't like having bad dreams? Scary stuff is scary. I'll give you that. But it, it, what is so bad about it? Is there a further story that if you have bad dreams, you're not going to sleep well, you're not going to be well rested for the next day, you might fail and in some sort of uh, social context, this would kind of lead to more of a social anxiety component to it. Is it afraid that, uh, you know, if you go to work or school that you're not going to perform very well? So it might be um, an academic or professional perfection uh, concern. Um, is it that uh, if you have bad dreams, you might die in your dreams? Um it could be a whole number of things. So one thing that would be important for you to consider then is, what am I afraid of? What is so scary about this? And then also ask yourself, what's the worst that's going to happen? And this is where you try to use your logical brain, the most logical part of your brain as possible that you can get. Another way to think about this, this is the way I really like to think about this, is who's the most logical and reasonable person you know? What would they say? If you came up to them and told them this fear of yours, what would they tell you? Would they say, oh, yeah, you should totally be afraid of bad dreams? Or would they say, Kyle, I think you're, I think you're, uh, you're, you're reading into this, you're thinking about this too much, or, or something to that effect. In other words, would they disagree with you? That would really lead itself or uh, lend itself to perhaps that your fear is, is distorted, it's inaccurate. Uh, going back to the top of the show, perhaps uh, your brain is giving you a conspiracy theory that's telling you something that's, that's a little bit out there. At the very least, we can say that what's happening here is some good old-fashioned magical thinking. In other words, the believing that your clothes are going to affect the process of your hippocampus converting your short-term memories into long-term memories. In other words, dreams. Oftentimes, your dreams are your hippocampus converting short-term memories, the stuff that happened during the day, into long-term memory, converting it to uh, the, the deeper part of your brain. Now, sometimes when all of, all of this happens, the neurons are firing all over the place and we get these super weird images. Oftentimes our dreams are related to things that happened during the day or themes uh, that, that we've been thinking about during the day. Um, and uh, that's where oftentimes where our dreams come from. Sure, they're more elaborate than that, but um, I'm not a dream specialist and nor do I even want to be. Uh, dreams are a confusing mess. Our brain is a confusing mess. Ultimately, I don't think we need to spend too much time thinking about them. But Sure, they're scary and entertaining and fun and super weird. They're all over the place. To that effect, this kind of has the simple phobia feel to it or a, a singular focus, which is I'm afraid of bad dreams, but it does have the kind of more elaborate OCD flavors. Ultimately, my advice to you would be to begin taking the risk of replacing the right clothes with the wrong clothes one by one. So likely you can consider that there is a hierarchy in your mind of safe clothes and dangerous clothes. 
further that there is there is kind of a that, that there's a spectrum from kind of more expendable clothes you could kind of give or take on that stuff and then some stuff that you believe is just fully safe this is like if i only had one thing this would be the thing that would keep me from having bad dreams what I'd love for you to do is to consider removing one per week. So exchanging one of the items of safe clothing for an item of danger, a dangerous item of clothing, or just a neutral item of, item of clothing. Now, I don't know if you have dangerous items of clothing, uh, stuff that you believe will, will ensure a bad dream, but at the very least, start by replacing the scary ones with neutral ones, uh, or sorry, the, the safe ones with neutral ones, one, one, one per week. Eventually, you're going to realize that you've been able to sleep without feeling perfect, but you've been able to sleep. And eventually, you're going to realize that you're not doing as many, if any, rituals related to the types of clothing you're wearing. Something to remember about this is that it's possible, it's probable, you're going to have a bad dream in this process. Because we all do. Bad dreams are just part, it's one of the side effects of having a human brain. It's what we get. But what that will mean is you'll just be like the rest of us, people who have good dreams, and then we have bad dreams, and then we go back to good dreams, and so on. I want you to use that moment of clarity you had when you wrote that email to me, though. You know that something is a little bonkers about this belief. It's a little bit out there. That's why you emailed me. I want you to trust that just for a little bit. Pump yourself up before you go to bed and say, you know what? I can sleep without my ritual. I can freaking do this. Use that logical thought. Remember, think about what your, your logical friend would say. Trust that and take that risk. Try exchanging some of those clothes. When you do, email me back and let me know how it goes. I'm very curious to find out. But thanks so much for the email. All right, so this next question comes from Jacob. Hey, he says, I've been diagnosed with and am in treatment for HOCD and POCD as well as bipolar, and I'm ultimately managing well. I'm 20 and single and a virgin and wondering if you have any advice for putting myself out there in the dating scene despite fear of intimacy and relationships. Jacob, uh, thank you so much for this question. Um, and I, I, that that groan is not because uh, you totally asked the right person. And um, I have some wisdom that is just beyond the ages. Um, it is because I so, I'm so bad at dating. And when I first got this, um, I kind of groaned to myself and, set, and just went, oh, man. When I started this podcast, I did not think anyone was going to be asking me dating advice. Um, I thought there are plenty of other people out there who have great dating advice. I'm not that guy. I'm so bad at dating. Oh my gosh. Um, you can ask my wife about this. You can ask anybody else I've, I've dated before. I'm bad at it. It's uncomfortable. Um, I'm not very... I, I, I balance between either not creative or... Or way too creative. Um, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm all or nothing. I'm too big or too small. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a plight that I have to face. Well, I don't have to face it that much. I'm married, so I'm not dating new people. But um, it's st I'm still just not good at it. So I'm going to do my darndest to answer your question. But um, uh, I j just giving you a little bit of insight into what it was like when I got this. Um, all right. So, 
I'm going to take it for granted, Jacob, that uh, that when you say you're, quote, managing well, I'm going to read this as I'm in therapy, I'm doing ERP, I'm resisting compulsive thoughts and rituals, I'm taking medication, and I'm having a healthy life balance that includes meaningful relationships with friends and family, uh, and also doing healthy, uh, uh, meaningful activities. So, if you're not doing those things, I'm going to highly encourage you really focus on those things because that is going to be a foundation for being uh, for dating well. To date well, you want to be a good and healthy and whole person because when we're dating, we want to be dating a whole healthy person in front of us. Now, it doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean saintly. When I say a whole person, it doesn't mean they don't have any mental health issues or any physical health issues. It just means that they are working towards being a well-balanced person. And they are, are making and they're taking active steps to improvement, to improve themselves. So if that's you, you're already in a good place. And for the sake of this conversation, I'm going to assume that's what you mean. Okay. The first thing that I want you to do is to start looking at that stigma and negative beliefs you have about yourself and your situation. You lay out these things. I'm 20, I'm single, and a virgin. You lay that out there like you have nine arms and a contagious disease. Why are these bad things? These are true statements about yourself. You're 20, you're single, and you're a virgin. In short, so what? So I think you might have bought into this this societal narrative that we're supposed to, by the age of 20, be in and out of relationships and uh, be sexually active. And I just don't necessarily think that that's healthy or helpful to the vast majority of people, possibly even to anybody. But um, but clearly for you, this is not a helpful narrative. Um, so again, I would have you question, well, what is so bad about this? Why is this so bad? And why is this saying that you are somehow defective? I also suspect that there's going to be a stigma you're placing upon yourself about having HOCD, POCD, and bipolar. Now, this is, this is a common fear, I'd say. For anyone who I work with who has POCD or HOCD, they, they place upon themselves this special stigma that somehow those are the worst. It's a POCD in particular, there's this belief that somehow because one has fears of, of being a pedophile, that they might as well be, and that they might as well be awful, and that everyone's going to reject them. Um, and that's just not necessarily true. It's just not always the case. HOCD and POCD, we need to remember, are both just OCD. It's all the same, and not one is more special or more disgusting or more awful than the others. It's just, they're they're all thoughts. Also, if you're effectively managing your bipolar with uh, with medication and therapy, then you are fully capable of having a functional and fulfilling and enjoyable life. Again, if you are not doing those things, I would encourage you to go and uh, seek out uh, uh, medication treatment and uh, uh, some behavioral help. Um, but again, those those things aren't necessarily magic. There are people who have uh, bipolar and are having successful lives. But again, it'd be my question for you is for you to be honest with yourself, or my advice for you would be to be honest with yourself about whether or not this is getting in your way and whether or not it is a problem. All right, but getting back to it, I'd love for you to give your fear of intimacy and relationships a really hard look. 
and con- to consider what are you actually afraid of? You said this is kind of the barrier in between you and getting into a relationship or you in ga- or getting out into the dating scene. But really, what are you afraid of? That you'll never be happy because you're stuck in a terrible relationship? That's a common fear that people have about relationships. Um, another common fear is that uh, no one's going to love you? That you're unlovable, maybe? Some have a fear that they're actually going to be seen by the other person, warts and all. That the other person, that this, this is intimacy, that other people are going to see you, really see you, and see all that stuff that you don't want to acknowledge. See all that stuff about that, that you think about, that you are into, that you like. Um, or all those weird beliefs that we have. We all have these things. But I also want to acknowledge is that intimacy is scary. It's scary for everybody. It's frightening, but it's also very freeing. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to experience. Um, and it, it's not this on-off switch that we are either intimate with people and that we are not. I'm using intimate here as an emotional intimacy, the intimacy that we find within uh, a, a long-term stable relationship. Um, but that, that, that is scary, to actually be seen by somebody and to actually be known. And this may be where the fear is, is that the other person is then going to actually know that you have HOCD and POCD. Sometimes we have the fear that then if somebody knows that we have HOCD and POCD and that they are, they, they intimately know who we are, they're going to intimately see that they're real. Now, that is your OCD talking. If you know anything about OCD and anxiety, you know that that's your OCD talking. But I'd love for you to spend some time and maybe talk with someone that you trust about intimacy. Maybe talk to someone who you feel has a successful relationship, a long-term successful relationship, and ask them what intimacy has been like. Ask them what, uh, not sexual intimacy, ask them about what it's like to actually be known by somebody else, to actually be seen and to actually have them see their failures and their weird parts and, you know, fart in front of somebody and, you know, burp and, or, or say something inappropriate or, you know, make a mistake and then and find that, you know, within a safe relationship, within a good, stable relationship, it can actually be really healing. It can be really comfortable and wonderful. So that would be my first advice for you, and probably my main advice for you. Uh, Of those two things is, one, to really look at the stigma that you have about your current situation, what it really means, and where you're coming up with this idea that somehow you're awful and terrible because you're 20 and single and a virgin, but also what is so bad about intimacy. But I also want to give you a little bit of the dating secret, that everyone is scared, and no one really knows themselves. We're all kind of growing into the people that we are, and we all have stuff about ourselves that we don't like. We, we kind of grow up with this idea that everyone seems to know themselves, and everyone is confident, and, 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 and is really comfortable with who they are and what they're into, and they know themselves, and, and we are over here just thinking that we're not. Um, no. Everyone is insecure. Everyone. And that's wonderful. I wish I knew this when I was in my 20s. It, it, it frees you up to being honest about yourself, what you actually want in life, what you don't want in life, uh, but also who you're looking for. And that we can be really honest and direct about the stuff that we want so we don't have to play these weird relationship games about trying to pretend like we're someone that we're not. Um, but rather to say, you know what, this is for the most part what, who I know myself to be. Having, uh, uh, having the, the humility to acknowledge that, you know, in, in 10 years we might change a little bit and that we might uh, uh, think differently slightly because we do. We grow and develop. And by the way, we should be growing and developing. But 
that everyone's insecure. The person that you're going to go out on a date with from uh, any of those dating apps is where people meet each other these days. Um, They're insecure and they're nervous too. So here would be my advice for you. Is I want you to make a list of all your great qualities. Make a list of your talents and your skills. Make a list of your virtues and your values. Um, now values, these are things meaning that uh, who you're striving to be. Who's this guy that you're trying to develop yourself into? What do you love about yourself? And don't just dismiss this one like you don't love anything about yourself. You could love small things about yourself, right? You could love the fact that you love Chinese food or love the fact that you love Slurpees. I don't know. It can be really basic stuff, but stuff that you really love or at the very least like about yourself. We need to write that stuff down. And then I want you to read it every day to remind yourself that you're a worthwhile person that deserves love and happiness. Furthermore, when you feel down and you feel uh, discouraged, I want you to read that letter. It might not pull you out of it magically, but it's going to remind yourself that when you come out of that slump and that discouragement, that there is still a quality person on the other end of it that, again, deserves love and relationships. And then, then again, go out on dates. And have lots of them. Join dating apps and go out on those dates and join groups. Go to um, meetup.com and try to find groups there that you could you could be a part of. And I'm of two minds on this. I'm going to kind of split on this. If you were in my office, we'd discuss this further and we'd try to evaluate what would be the right step. But, uh, but you'll have to try them to figure out which one is best. One, you can tell the people that you're on that you're nervous and that you don't really date very often. Um, and sometimes by just kind of saying this, it 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 it, it opens us up. It it, um, it takes the edge off, really, uh, and frees you up to just you know. If you already notice that you're nervous, then the other person might say, "Oh, I'm nervous too," or they're going to say, "Oh, it's totally fine." And by the way, if they say, "Oh, well, you're a big weirdo," trust me, you saved yourself some time. Run from this person. But likely speaking, they're going to say, "Oh, it's totally fine." So it can free us up. Now, the other part is, the other uh, mindset I have is that you could not tell them, but rather go in pretending that you are oozing with confidence, that you are, you are 10 years ahead of yourself, that you are that person who is confident and, and secure and knows himself and is all about uh, who he is and what he knows about himself. Go in pretending to be that person. If we pretend to be that person, sometimes people treat us like we're that person. And then we start acting like that person and we realize that maybe we're that person all along. It's a little bit of a mind hack. It's a little bit of game we can play with ourselves. But try both of those and see how you feel. See how it works. But again, avoiding getting into dates because of these, quote, stigmas and because of, of, of all these, quote, problems that you laid out is, old, is, is only going to reinforce that dating is scary and dating is bad and you don't deserve to be dating. It's all BS. That's your conspiracy theorist. Instead, Take a risk. Go out there and date. It's going to be great. Or it's going to be super weird. It's going to be super weird. Dating is super awkward. But it's going to be great. You got this. All right. My last question today comes from Jezza. She asks, I just listened to your podcast. Thanks. It was great. Well, thanks so much uh, to you. You are great. All right. Um, uh, she asks, uh, I have an issue where I constantly need to take a deep breath, which I can't always do. It needs to be really deep, she says. Um, 
I've had x-rays, blood tests, etc., and there's nothing physically wrong with me. I'm starting to think it's some form of OCD. Uh, I get a physical sensation, sensation which she specifies as anxiety, uh, in my chest until I can get the next deep breath. It's starting to consume my every thought, and I'm terrified I'm never going to stop thinking about it. During the day, it's basically constant. I take a breath, get relief, and the feeling's back again a minute later. It's also affecting my sleep because I can't go to sleep with the sensation, and I need to take a deep breath. Do you think this is OCD? I did get to see a psychologist uh, for two sessions, uh, but felt like she had no idea what was going on. Um, no surprise. I've tried to write out the feeling, but it's virtually impossible to ignore the sensation of needing to breathe. Thanks. All right, Jezza, thank you so much for this question. So, um, the first thing I'm going to have you do is I want you to go back and listen to episode 18 of this podcast if you haven't listened to it yet. Um, in, in episode 18, we talk about something called sensory motor uh, OCD. So, sensory motor OCD is really just going to be OCD based on and focused all around physical sensations or things that our body does, just natural stuff that our body does. Uh, a lot of those things are going to be, or, or many of those things, many of the obsessions that people have with sensory motor OCD is going to be, uh, they're blinking, they're breathing, they're swallowing. Uh, it's going to be uh, physical sensations. It could be groinal sensations in and of themselves. Uh, it could be attention to their heartbeat. It could be uh, tinnitus. Uh, in other words, a uh, uh, high-pitched ringing in one's ears. Uh, it can be a lot of things that our body does. Uh, some people will also focus on visual floaters, things that kind of flow th float through our our kind of the, the periphery of our vision. Uh, it can be hyper-focusing on halos that people have. You might see that. There's a lot of things that you and I can focus on. It does sound like you are focusing on, or as you obviously said, you're focusing on your breathing a ton. Um, there, there'd be a lot more things that I would, I would want to do to talk about um, uh, in, in, if you were in my office uh to discern whether or not this is OCD or something else. So I'm not going to diagnose via a podcast and via a small paragraph whether or not you do in fact have OCD. For funsies, I'm going to treat this as if it is because you sought out an OCD therapist. Um, it's, it's great that you, you, you did go do a couple of things that I think are important if you're brand new to sensory motor OCD is to go to a doctor and maybe see if there is something physically wrong, which you did. You took some x-rays, you did the blood tests, you found out that there's nothing physically wrong with you. Great. Trust that, at least for now. Trust that bit of information. Maybe we can treat it at the very least that you're having an intrusive thought about your breathing, and it's physically uncomfortable. Now, notice that the the thought, the feared story your brain's giving you is, you, what if you never stop thinking about this? And then it says, oh no. It says the idea of that seems terrifying. So, I, I, I am I, again, I'm going to encourage you to go back to listen to episode 18 because I'm going to go into this in a lot more detail. But briefly here, one of the most important things that we can do is to recognize that that our attention does fluctuate in and out of of our breathing. And yes, it's not every breath that we're thinking about our breath, but it's a lot of them. But also, thinking about the feared thought, what's so bad about you never thinking about it? Or rather, you never not thinking about it, that you constantly are going to think about this for the rest of your life. 
think about again, what is so bad about that? What do you fear is going to happen to you? Does it mean that you're never going to be able to focus on something, that you're never going to fully enjoy your life? Um, Because it's not necessarily, there's going to be the temptation for you to try to habituate, and some therapists are going to have the uh, temptation to habituate to that discomfort of your breathing. It's not necessarily the most helpful, if at all, the helpful, the most helpful uh, exposure to do, because that's not really the fear. The fear isn't the breath. The fear is what's going to happen at the end of it, what's going to happen to the course of your life because of this breath. The fact that you're attending to your breath, it's this innocuous thing. You are breathing, and it does feel weird. You're right. You are breathing, and it feels weird. I'm not going to argue with you on that one. But... The story that your brain tells you about what's so bad about that is what's the most important thing. I would encourage you to try to find a therapist, psychologist, an MFT, an LCSW, a PsyD, an LPCC, an LPC, anyone who's qualified to to work with this and who specializes in OCD because they're going to have a better understanding of what this is. And by the way, not every therapist who specializes in anxiety and OCD or even just a CBT therapist out there is going to know what this is or know how to handle it. And, And that's okay. You can have them listen to episode 18 as well. Obviously, there are going to be a number of exposures that you can do to the idea that this thing is is potentially never going to go away. Because you're trying to likely do compulsions that to ensure that it is, in fact, going to go away and that it's not going to be there forever. And that you ultimately, even if it is there forever, that you're still going to have a happy and fulfilling life. So there are a lot of exposures that you can do to that concept uh, and, and a lot of things that are going to be very good. A, a mindset is really going to have to shift with this. The mindset is maybe this is never going to go away, but really that's not that bad. Maybe my attention is never going to go away. But that's not that bad. Sensory motor OCD seems to be exceptionally sticky with people, where it, it, this the the panic and the frustration and the anger at this is just so so central to somebody. So you're going to need to find a way to accept that maybe this is never going to be go away, and that you are now privy to a, a function of your body that you weren't paying attention to before. And you now have the gift that other people don't have, which is to pay attention to their breathing and to, and to really be intimately connected to the fullness of your breath and what that feels like. And, and uh, unfortunately, some of that comes with an unsatisfying feeling. But it's not like you're going to die of this. You're not going to not breathe. Trust me. You are constantly breathing, and you're very acutely aware of that. But that's not what you're afraid of. You're afraid that maybe life in the future is not going to be happy, which brings me to the most important thing that you can do, is to get out of the future and to get back into the present. It's in this moment that we live. You and I can't do anything to control 10 minutes from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. All we can do is just experience what's happening right now. And right now, you're saying it feels uncomfortable. It does. But what are some fun things that you can do in life? How can you reshift your attention from instead being that your, your life is over because you're thinking about your breathing to saying, all right, I am thinking about my breathing. What sort of life do I want? And if you say, likely you're to say, uh, well, a, a life that doesn't involve me focusing on my breathing. It's not an option anymore. You're focusing on your breathing. Okay. What else then? If that's the only thing that is going to be the difference between a life worth living and a terrible, horrible, awful life, then that is, that is something that needs to be focused on. But if you can say, you know what, I've got this thing 
What sort of life am I going to have? And by the way, people who are diagnosed with diabetes also have the same shift because now their life is different. For any other medical or physical health problem, there is a before and after, a BCE and AD, or BCE and CE, rather, common era, um, mindset that needs to take place. So what is the life that I want to try to develop right now with this? And what can I do about that right now? What are some steps you can do? What can you do to still enjoy yourself? And to make space for the attention and that thought. Maybe even, again, treat it like this um, intrusive conspiracy theory thought. This is a thought. And that it's never going to kill you. It's never going to make you do anything. It's really just going to be obnoxious. Making space for that and learning to sit with that discomfort and make friends with that discomfort in a sense. The last thing you said in your email was, I've tried to write out the feeling, but it's virtually impossible to ignore the sensation of needing to breathe. And that's kind of the point, is that it is going to be impossible to ignore it because it's one, the thing that's bugging you immensely, so you're constantly thinking about it. And two, um, it's that we can't ignore a bodily sensation. It's there. You are experiencing it. So instead of trying to avoid it, acknowledge that it's there. Make space for it. Create an additional room in your life where that attention lives. It's not going to be fun, but it's but we do this all the time. We acknowledge that it's raining outside when we want it to go to the beach. We acknowledge that it's quote or that it's bad weather when we're about to do something that is outdoors. We say, "Well, that sucks, but are we still willing to do it?" If you were going to go to Disneyland and it was raining that day, would you say it's not even worth going? Or would you say, "I'm still going to go, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a jacket on. Maybe I'll take an umbrella." You would, you would have adapted. That's what we're going to do with this attention and with the feeling of your breathing. We're going to go and we're going to go live our life. And maybe it's not going to be fully present. And maybe it's not going to be fully as happy as you wanted it to be. But we're going to try to make the best possible life out of it that we can. Now, I would also encourage you again to go find a therapist who does specialize in this to kind of unpack this further and to kind of build into uh, what this mindset looks like, uh, maybe even challenging this thought um, through some cognitive work, working on some acceptance techniques and exercises, and also doing some exposures uh, on this. So I hope I answered your question a little bit. Um, uh, I do appreciate you asking the question, and, uh, and I hope you can get a handle on this and find that life is still worth living with this thought and that you can still have a fully functional, fully enjoyable life and focus on your breathing. Thanks. And that's the show. Thank you, everybody, for making it through this episode. Um, if you have questions for a future episode or if you have any feedback on any questions or any of the answers that I gave to these questions, uh, you can always go over to the website, fearcastpodcast.com. Uh, you can go to the submit question link there, ask a question link there, uh, and, uh, and let me know. Um, I'm more than happy to hear your questions, and uh, I read all the questions, and um, I will likely answer it on a future episode. As always, please remember that the FearCast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you have any questions about getting started in therapy or, or are, are trying to make a little bit more progress in your own recovery, um, 
Well, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and there's going to be a, uh, a link where you can uh, get connected uh, to some more information there. Uh, you can also hear and, and uh, see all the other all the other episodes uh, in the past. Uh, if you like the Fearcast and, uh, and and you're liking what you're hearing, uh, please go over to iTunes, wherever it is that you get your podcasts, and uh, submit a, a review there. Uh, give me a star, give me a like, give me a thumbs up, ha- however else it is. Uh, it, it ultimately just helps others to find uh, this podcast as you have. Uh, and again, thank you so much for listening. It, it means the world that there are people out there listening. So um, to wrap things up, as always... Take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.